Hello and welcome to the Day Minimus podcast. My name is Cameron Moyer and I'm the current podcast editor at Day Minimus. We're back after a long hiatus. Unfortunately, during the early part of last semester, I began to experience some health problems, which prevented me from doing the show. But now we're back and we'll be able to put out more regular shows, hopefully. To kick off the new semester, I'm going to be interviewing Tim Baxter about climate change and the law. Tim is a senior researcher at the Climate Council, and before this he was a lecturer at the Melbourne Law School, where some of you might have had him for taught law. Unfortunately, the audio quality for this interview wasn't great, so I've had to do some improvised editing, which I'm, to be honest, not great at, but hopefully it's improved it somewhat. But without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Baxter. I hope you enjoy. Tim Baxter, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So how did you come to study law in the first place? Oh, God, that's a question. Um, By accident? Uh, No. (laughs) I, so my undergraduate degree was in writing and during the, at the tail end of my undergraduate degree, I had a kid. Um, I, but I, so I was sort of the last, I don't know, couple of years of my undergrad degree, I just sort of dragged it out forever and ever and ever and ever because I was doing like one subject a semester. Got to the end of it and then at some point I had this harebrained scheme of going off and doing a law degree, which was truly ridiculous in the context of I was a young parent and going, I'm going to have a kid. Um, I'm going to have a kid. I'm going to have a, sorry, I'm going to have a, have a law degree, um, which is probably, well, about as traumatic, really, as parenting. Um, the intention with that was that, you know, I had a, my undergraduate was in professional writing and I knew by the time I'd finished my degree that there was definitely no job in professional writing that was one that I wanted. Um, the best thing about the professional writing degree ever did for me was convince me that I didn't want to be a writer anymore. Um, and so I was looking, okay, what am I going to do? I'm not going to work retail the rest of my life. I'm passionate about a bunch of causes. I get drunk at the pub and shout about climate change and shout about refugees and things like that. And, um, you know, I'm one of those obnoxious douchebags, maybe I'll be a lawyer. Um, and that was kind of the idea. Um, it was never intended for me to be a proper lawyer but I had no great plan to actually get a practicing certificate and go out there but it was about what can I do with a law degree it was pretty eyes wide open in terms of that being like with a law degree I can and this was my idea was that I would be able to see into the machinery of how things work a little bit better and be able to work out how to make a difference that way and do you think that panned out yes definitely I think um one thing a law degree does more than anything else is it reshapes your um, way of looking at the world. I kind of, I'm, I'm sure I said it to you, Cameron, when I was teaching and taught a couple of years ago. Um, <clears throat> it is sort of the lecture theatre um, that no one goes comes out of a law degree the same person that they went in. Um, mm. It's kind of a crucible. It doesn't doesn't necessarily change people for the better and in case in 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 several cases i think it it does change tends as a tendency to change a lot of people for the worse but you look at the world differently with a law degree you 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 the mechanics of how things function and the way the machinery of things fits together is sort of laid bare for you in a way that it's not if you haven't got a law degree um and that's not mean, mean to be elitist it's just you see, same as an engineer, an engineer sees different ways that the things around their house fit together and the angles and the, that kind of machinery. 
it gives you another lever um, to think, okay, I need to make change. So I need to, you know, there's this piece of legislation coming up. Here are the lines in it that are terrible and here's how they need to be to be better. Um, is a very different perspective on the world to what most people have. Mm. So what, what did you mean when you said that it can change people for the worse? Oh, lawyers are arrogant. Like oh. you, <laughs> any person that has a law degree is arrogant. No, there, there aren't. I don't, uh, this, you know, not every single human being who has a law degree is arrogant. There are five who aren't. Uh, <laughs> a, law, a law degrees breed a certain type of personality. I think you have to be a certain personality to want to have a law degree to start with. And then when you're there, you are, and there's a certain culture that's embedded both through the law school and partly through, you know, there's a certain confidence you gain that can, in certain people, tend towards obnoxiousness. That doesn't mean you can't mitigate against it. That doesn't mean you can't be like, I'm going to be a decent human being um, and, and do the right thing with it. Arrogance isn't necessarily a bad trait, um, but it can be. And then there's a bunch of other, you know, all of the, the ongoing cultural things about um, lawyers and law schools that have been going on since time immemorial um, mm. in the sort of the scarier, more um, the darker corners of the industry. Um, but it does, it tends to attract a certain type of person. Yeah. If you don't mind me asking, how did you find studying while being a parent? Oh, I mean, my particular story was pretty rough in the sense that I became a single parent in the time that I was doing my law degree, which was mm. not entirely to do with the fact that I was doing a law degree, but I, I don't think it helped. Um, uh, and so there was that. So I actually, at one stage, sort of for about half of my law degree, I was a 20, I don't know, 20, 26, 27 year old living in a share house with 19 year olds, um, uh, sharing one room with my daughter. So we had one room in the share house of multitudes. I think there were six or seven of us living in the same house. And my, you know, so I was studying at my desk with my daughter asleep in her bed just like a, you know, a meter and a half away from me. The fact that I passed it all um, is, is truly a miracle. Um, it's, it's not, I mean, law degrees aren't a thing. It's not a degree that's designed for parenthood. Do you think about the amount of work? I mean, certainly to get high marks, you can sort of get a reasonable level of aptitude you can get through, but to be the, the person who's getting well, in my instance, it was HDs because I studied at Monash, but Melbourne, the H1s. But to be the person who's getting the H1s, I don't know that I ever taught a parent who got that level of marks. Um, it isn't. But it's still, it's just bloody hard. I wouldn't do it again. And if anyone came to me and, and said, I'm a single parent and I'm looking, up, looking to go and do a law degree, what do you reckon? I would tell them probably to run for the hills and maybe come back later. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't a fun time mm. yeah so what did you do after you finished your law degree and how did you wind up where you are now so i always had a passion for climate was doing a bit of um advocacy volunteering advocacy stuff with groups like the australian youth climate coalition which i was technically still youth in that it being and by their definition of youth at, at 26, 27, 28, 
I think they, they age out at 30, so I was pushing the limits, but um, doing a lot of work with them um, uh, and uh, just ended up getting a research assistant job at Melbourne Law School, which was through a friend. Um, so a friend of mine who now works for Transparency International was helping to manage a, pro a project with uh, Professor Lee Godden and said, hey, Tim, there's a vacancy here. I reckon you'd be good to do it came and helped out with that and helped out there for a couple of years and sort of just like within academia, basically. It was all very chance. The first class that I taught won't reassure people's confidence in the teaching quality at Melbourne University, at Melbourne University, but the first class that I taught was literally the night before I was due to teach the first class. I was in um, emergency with my now partner because we met around this time um i was in emergency with my now partner because she had a kidney stone if memory serves and i got a phone call um from someone at the law school i probably shouldn't name who being like i need another teacher for the subject that i've got um the classes start tomorrow can you do it it's just like uh that's a subject that i've not really looked at since law school um are you sure you want me to do it and like we're desperate we need someone and i fell into teaching and then and found i found i had some competence for teaching up to that point and that was sort of where i built that during that time i was doing still doing a lot of climate work and a lot of climate work both on the side helping organizations doing a bit of media in my own name also doing my thesis at the same time um, and a position came up with the Climate Council that was sort of fairly ideal for my skill set. Um, and so, yeah, my partner told me, if you don't apply for this job, I will never talk to you again. And she literally said those words. And so I applied for that job and I got it. And she's still talking to me. Um, oh, so, good outcome then. Yeah, which, which is okay. So, you know, for better and worse. Uh, <laughs> so how would you describe the work that you do at the moment then? Mm. Um, wild, like truly, truly um, wild in terms of the amount of law, like black letter law that I'm doing today, they're doing these days, it's pretty low, because certainly compared to when I was at the law school, you know, teaching, I'm obviously having to be enmeshed in black letter law. And then also through my thesis, which was a thesis looking at, you know, which was digging through um, the bowels of 18th century equity like you know starting in starting with principles of equity back in the 18th century and reading these trying to find statute books from south australia from you know the you know 19th like from the 19th century and that kind of stuff is just insane um today i probably do less in terms of like black metal law but although that's it i'm still doing a fair bit you know there's a new um delegated legislation to change the rules for the australian renewable energy agency that came out on thursday and those functionally similar regulations were um, disallowed by the senate in june i want to say so you know six weeks ago um and obviously there's principles of that in the legislation act 2003 talking about you know if you disallow a de dis disallow delegated legislation what's the time period between then and what are the what's the approval process and all of that kind of stuff and i'm not you know to a certain degree it's sort of getting across those issues enough that i can be like try and make a first stab at where the organize how the organization is going to fit within that 
and having a look. We're obviously leaving the the detailed legal analysis to organisations like, you know, other other organisations where there's lawyers on on who have general counsel within their team and think like, no, you can go and do that. I'm not sitting there and going to compare the legislation line by line, but to get a sense of where we sit within that space. Um, really leans pretty heavily on that um, on that expertise that I've built up. But it's also just the the way of knowing how these systems of power operate. And the law is fundamentally um, about power. Um, and it's about power that you can use for good or you can use for bad. It's power is not necessarily a bad thing, but law is power ultimately at the end of the day. And it's state power. Um, so knowing how that power works so that you can use the tools of the people well, in the instance of the current government the people who aren't doing enough on climate change like there's no big question on that um, use the tools that they have that they've developed for themselves against them um, or find ways to use the tools that are lying around somewhere in the 19th century against them in order to try and force a, an outcome that is has some respect for science and has some respect for where we need to be in the, the gap between those two places. It's the same as the refugee cases that we had through um, 2018, all of the negligence cases that were coming up then um, of, you know, refugees sitting on Manus, Manus Island or Nauru and is being denied medical treatment that they clearly require and they clearly uh, you know, there's fairly clear duty of care owed by the minister and the minister's just been like, yeah. So you go, okay, well, what are the tools that I have in my belt for this, to deal with this duty of care problem? Oh, look at this negligence I found lying around um, in the bottom of a bottle of ginger beer and picking that up and, you know, applying that to that circumstance, being able to force things that have some respect for rule of law and have some respect for the norms that we have in society about how power can and can't be used. So, What's the, um, sorry, I'm just trying to think of how to phrase this. What's the state of how law is interacting with um, climate change and climate issues at the moment? What's sort of the general lay of the land? Uneasily, like hmm. uneasily. The law doesn't, the law is not good at a problem like climate change. And I can the. the my thesis was looking at whether negligence can be used. My thesis, for health reasons in my family, my thesis never got finished. It's still sort of sitting, actually a folder on the chair here that still has my thesis. And it's like every so often I pick it up and I'm like, I'm going to work on this and get it through, not as a thesis, but just to get it out into the world. Um, but looking at um, whether the, the rule of law and the rules of negligence can be applied and the rules of equity in and around negligence can be applied to make it so that the courts can take, um, can grapple with a problem like climate change in a way that's serious. And that is where the, the refugee cases sort of come to the fore is it is, that is the rule of ne rule of negligence, rules of negligence being used in a way that's different to how we've used them before. I mean, you're a far cry from, you know, I did sort of throw in a veiled reference, but you're a far cry from half a decomposed snail in a bottle of ginger beer and somebody feeling somebody um, feeling sick because they may or may not have consumed half a decomposing sale to the literally existential problem that is climate change. And I don't mean existential in the sense of human extinction. 
I mean, the existence of many is on the line here. You're not, there is no problem. There are problems that are systemic problems in society that are of an equivalent scale um, in terms of you know, systemic racism and, and various forms of human rights abuse. But ultimately, there's never been a problem of the same cross-cutting um, scale as climate change. And to be like, okay, here's this law that is the same law that means that when I crash my car into the back of somebody else's car, can I pick that up and apply that um, to a problem like climate change? It's, it's so much breaks when you do that, when you pick it up and, and try to put it on the other thing. But it's also because it's kind of broken and because we live in a common law legal system, broken doesn't mean that it can't work. Broken just means that the judges have to come up with a principle to fill the gap. And, and that's, that requires judges understanding science in a way that judges just don't. We have, there's this huge, um, yeah, there's this massive dearth of, of judges who have scientific expertise or even just basic level of science training. Um, we just don't have that many. And when you're dealing with, you know, a problem like climate change, it, it really is at the, the forefront of science. Like we've known about this issue for a while, but it, but it, if you ever, and even me, but somebody who lives and breathes this stuff, if I ever start getting overconfident, feeling like I know everything, I just need to look at the size of the IPCC assessment reports. Like each, you've got like in the, in the most recent IPCC assessment, round, which was back in 2013 and 2014, you've got three working group assessment reports, working group one, working group two, working group three. Each of them are about four inches thick. Um, and that's, that's like, that's the summary of our knowledge of climate science. So to think, okay, I'm going to take that to a judge and be able to like sit that in front of a judge and just like, you know, chat through it with them so that they really understand every detail. Uh, no, that's not going to happen. So you've got to find these ways to translate that knowledge that is so, so, so profound and so technical and so detailed in a way that a judge can understand it. That said, while you know there's this sort of the claim that you know law shouldn't grapple with these scientific issues maybe this is something that should be done elsewhere because it's such a scientific complicated scientific issue no one ever says that about patent law cases which can be extraordinarily complex or you know even just basic um, mergers merger and acquisition dispute like they're just absurdly detailed mm -hmm. But yeah, there is this, this tension that's there where, you know, trying to get judges to understand climate change or just trying to get lawyers to understand climate change is, is a hell of an ask um, because it is just such a complex issue. Yeah, yeah. So what's the um, state of affairs at different levels of government then at sort of a state level Commonwealth level and internationally, what's going on at the moment? Uh, so we have, in, if we go, so the micro go one level lower than where you're going as well. We have local governments. Okay. Um, a lot of local governments are really seriously grappling with climate change, um, particularly because of their planning responsibilities and having to look really hard. And so they're often a bit closer to the detailed modeling um, stuff. Obviously, there's, you know, real capacity gaps. I mean, local governments don't have 
with qualified staff to look at so many of this, so much of this stuff. They, they usually have like one sustainability officer and that sustainability officer covers everything that's a bit greenish, a bit hippie-ish is the sustainability officers thing. So that's all from like local biodiversity through to what's happening in the parks and in the park, lawns being mowed through to who's collecting the recycling through to blah, 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 blah. But they are having to grapple with these issues at a sort of a fairly acute level when you're looking at your local flood map and it's, you're having to look at okay, where is what is this going to look like in 50 years time and you're planning 50 years ahead because you have to when you're looking at residential developments it gives you one way of doing stuff then you've got state state and territory governments in australia state and territory governments are a bit of a mixed bag although they're all stepping up in their way within chunks they're not all doing everything that they could certainly there are two or three state and territory governments in australia where greenhouse gas emissions are going up when they should be doing the other thing um but they're generally grappling with this issue seriously and there's some really really great policies being announced even from some of the governments that are a little bit more recalcitrant when it comes to climate action they're still coming up with really great innovative um, policies to deal with it the federal government at the moment is all wasteland um, when it comes to action on climate change, they don't want to do it. They don't intend to do it. It's, it's, it's how can we make it look like we're doing work on climate change without actually doing any work on climate change. And so much of what is there is, is media strategy and, and public, public relations rather than actual action. That's not to say there's nothing, um, but whenever there's a new announcement, the immediate the immediate response for anyone who's had any modicum of experience of engaging with the federal government on this particular issue is like, where's the asterisk? Where's the bit where they're excluding all of the stuff that actually matters in favour of, you know, more money going to fossil fuels? Unfortunately, that's the state of affairs at the moment. Not to say that there aren't good people in there. They're just not winning um, at the end of the day. Um, internationally, I'd say it's a different kind of wasteland, just by virtue of international law being international law, and then by virtue of the way that um, the UNFCCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, operates. Everything is consent. <coughs> sorry, everything is consent-based decision making when it comes to um, when it comes to international agreements, of course, but. The UNFCCC has the added complication that everything is consent-based and everything is consensus-based, which means you only need to have one out of the 197 countries in the world be like, no, nah, I don't like that line, and it's gone. Like, you're not going to get it across the line. And Australia has a, um, a long history of using that particular power to its advantage and has, you know, 1997 Kyoto Protocol after the, um, the, the conference of parties was supposed to have already closed. Australia chucked a tandy um, and said, we're not gonna sign the agreement unless it includes this list of demands that we've never raised before. We're just bringing it up now. And everyone else was like, well, we have to agree or else we've got no agreement. And we have to, we have to agree to those demands or else we've got no agreement now, um, which is just, I'm, by no means a, a fan of the idea of one world governments or anything else like that. But maybe we need to shift a little bit more into the, in the direction away from, you know, the consensus-based decision-making. Um, but of course, it being consent-based decision-making means you've got no option. Um, but yeah, that's sort of, you know, so it's a, it, but it is a changing landscape, like really, really rapidly, um, both, 
you look at things like the EU has announced that it's going to have a border adjustment, a carbon border adjustment mechanism um, in the near future, which means that anything that's being imported from a country, anything that's from an emissions intensive product, of, and I'm oversimplifying here, which is why you can tell me I'm, you can tell I'm second guessing is because I'm like oversimplifying. I'm like, man, oversimplifying so much that this is a bad oversimplification. I think I'm good. So basically any um, emissions intensive product that's coming from a country that doesn't have a carbon price, high Australia, um, has a tax put on it, which is a huge impost. I mean, Australia doesn't import much to Europe, um, particularly but directly. We do have a lot of products that we send, to, uh, export, sorry, export a lot of stuff to Europe. We do have a lot of stuff that we export to countries that export to Europe. And so, you know, a lot of our raw materials going to China in particular, going to Europe, means that we will be indirectly um, affected by the European um carbon tax which is a big deal and then you've got countries like japan um the usa and china itself who are also considering um equivalent border adjustment mechanisms and suddenly australia's international trade is looking pretty exposed um you know japan and china are our two biggest export partners um they put a border adjustment mechanism on it and we've got a carbon tax like there is no stuffing around there the government can sit there and say that we're not going to have a carbon tax it's like you're gonna it's are you going to pay those guys your carbon tax or are you going to collect the money yourself and spend it on spend it yourself like that's the state of affairs so it's a really rapidly changing landscape in that regard mm. um so yeah you ended on sort of a more hopeful that i was wondering if there's also any I mean, apart from it being a wasteland, it was slightly hopeful. <laughs> um, is there any example of civil society groups in Australia using the law to sort of force change in this regard? Is there anything hopeful? Sharma, um, the Sharma judgment the other week is mm. that was, you know, I know David Barnden, the um, the lead litigation leader. Um, uh, at the who ran the Sharma case um, at an equity generation lawyers. So I was just having a mental blank on what their proper name was, equity generation lawyers. And yeah, I mean that's that case was truly remarkable in many ways. Um, because it did pick up those principles of negligence, the stuff that I was talking about before, and delved back into, you know, some some deep Latin in terms of its principles of equity. Like you're talking about Latin that is not Latin that other people know um, in terms of, in, in order to justify um, a, deci a decision that the um, Minister for the Environment has a duty of care to protect future generations. That's huge. Like it's, it's so, you know, that's the sort of thing and I'm not, certainly not claiming credit for anything in the Sharma judgment even like my stuff overlaps with it but that is definitely their win I'm not claiming credit for it but I was talking about sort of similar stuff similar like rethinkings of the law and it's the sort of thing where you know there were instances in my life where I've talked about this kind of stuff being an available option and had people scoff and be like you know proper black level lawyers being like oh no of course not uh, what are you talking about and it's like yeah it's there like these decisions have to be made and then you know if you're going into this kind of these areas that are the far-flung areas of law where there isn't a principle then you've got to find an answer to a legal question like you can't just wash your hands of it and be like nah too hard 
the judge has to decide and then they have to go okay what are the tools that i've got in my box in order to understand in order to decide this thing about you know negligence and principles of equity and whether or whether or not i can um, issue queer to met injunctions under these under this circumstance they have to provide an answer and and that's the thing is it's like that's where i think you sort of start seeing some of these more landscape shifting um cases where they come up come up against that sort of black box or you know black hole i guess is a better word for it a black hole of the law and be like sorry judge i've put you there you just i know you don't want to be here but you're just going to have to make a decision um and those will go some ways and they will go other ways they will go something they will go in favor of the um you know environmental advocates sometimes they'll go against environmental advocates sometimes but they're pushing the boundaries of the law and, and growing the law like you know this great amoeba that it is um pushing into areas that it has to like realistically this is where we're at with with climate change we're sort of at a point where i mean climate change is a threat to democracy and so you don't have to go far back in order to find you know justifications of why the law exists and it's to you know to ensure the stability of the state ultimately it is it is about the stability of the state and that's not necessarily the stability of the state from an external threat um, but it is in order to allow the state to continue to exist through the permission of the polity and if you don't deal with big problems like climate change then the permission of the polity starts to erode real fast um, and you're not going to find a judge who says, you know, I'm making this decision because I've got to, you know, uphold the state or can ensure the continued existence of the state. But if they don't start taking this problem of climate change seriously, then the whole idea of government becomes kind of meaningless. Because if you're not, if the law is not capable of forcing action on this, then what on earth is it for? Um, you know, the biggest issue of justice that has ever occurred most cross-cutting issue of justice has ever occurred and the law's like nah not gonna not gonna on this one um mm. it really yeah is. so to bring up the um old term it's no longer serving the common wheel exactly um mm. and you know and then if we don't have that then what are we back to well we're back to blood feuds and all of that shit that is why we have a common law legal system um mm. uh, so it is, it, it will, law can, it's a matter of how much the law will ultimately be the one that gets to the front. I think the law plays a really key role. I don't think the law is going to fix this for us. Um, I do have a book somewhere behind me. I can find it. No, I can't find it. I see who. Which is um, by Roger Cox, who's the guy. I don't know why I'm showing it to the screen station. This is just audio. I didn't actually ask you. you. Just read it at Revolution Justified. Why only the law can save us now. Why only the law can save us now. Now that's yeah. a old ass subtitle, if ever there was one. Um, but that's written by the guy who um, first conceptualized the um, Ahenda case in the Netherlands, which was functionally sim functionally identical to Sharma. Um, mm -hmm. I mean the. The Dutch law and the Australian law are not the same, but, you know, civil law, you're on the other side of the civil law divide. 
it's basically the same. I mean, even the law of negligence started because in a cafe in the, in the Netherlands, which is truly, like, <laughs> instead of it being someone with a, a, a half decomposed snail and a bottle of ginger beer, it was a Coca-Cola delivery, uh, delivery man falling down an open cellar door. Um, and they got the cellar hatch ruling, um, which started negligence over there. Um, they have duty of care. They have, you know, um, you've got, you know, scope of duty questions. You've got breach of duty questions. It's, it is, you know, it's all codified, but it all has its sim very, very similar origins to where the common law negligence comes from. Mm. Um, so just two more questions on this. So how, what are the um, implications of that ruling in practice? Um, so that there is a duty of care. Okay, so yeah, that's first out, that's just huge by itself. But there's a, we have, you know, a few cases in negligence, things like Crimmins, um, which I'm sure you can summarize back to me given I taught it to you a couple of years. Uh -huh. Yeah, okay. sure. Um, you have a few instances where, and that's a, that's a, basically it's just an OHS case, but in that instance, the um, uh, defendant was a public authority. Um, and it was really pushing these sort of policy boundary type stuff um, of, you know, we have within the law of negligence, this policy or operational dichotomy. And if something is a policy decision, then it's not open to challenge under negligence. If it's an operational decision, um, then it is. I mean, Crimmins just buggers that entire thing off because it just, it is clearly, they made the decision for policy reasons. What you have, you know, policy, oh no, of Sorry, I'm going back a step in order to go forward a step. So the policy operational dichotomy is kind of dumb um, because every decision that's made by a government is a policy is ultimately rooted in a policy decision. Like, and and the extreme in extremists, you have the opposite end as well. Is like, what if you know a local government just decided to just purely for budgetary reasons, purely because they wanted to spend money elsewhere? What if they just decided to just not service their motor vehicle fleet? just completely not service their motor vehicle fleet, just drive it until it breaks. And then one of the cars um, cars kills someone. You say it's a local government or it's a, you know some kind of statutory authority, they just decided to drive it till it kills someone. Can they really not be found negligent in, uh, can, can they really not be found, found liable in negligence because they made a policy decision under those circumstances? Is this the law that we're willing to accept be that kind of thing? So I think, and I think that's something that sort of come up, comes up in some of the cases as well, particularly through the high court judgments, the judges just grappling with this particular area of law. And one of my favourite quotes about this kind of area of law also is that um, Kirby once described it as the most difficult, which was just like, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, not a Kirby fanboy. but You're making a gesture there that I'm... It, it, yeah. It, oh yeah, sorry, a gesture there, which was just uh, brushing of my collar. Um, yeah. Brushing my collar. Um, I'm not exactly a Kirby fanboy, but at the same time, it is nice to have a, any high court judge say the area of law that you're looking at is the most difficult. It's a good moment for when you're sitting there looking at a, looking at a case and just being like, what is it even saying? Um, uh, I think Sharma finally, and it is, it is a judge of us, it is a decision of a single judge of um, the federal court. Um, it's uh, Justice Bromberg who has made some, you know, probably on the more adventurous 
um, side of um, even there's you know the Melbourne Federal Court, which is sort of a little bit more adventurous even than the rest of the Federal Court. And he's probably on the adventurous side of the Melbourne Federal Court in terms of some of his positions and his willingness to go in places where other judges would probably try and find an excuse to not. Um, uh, in doing so, he has confronted that issue honestly and sort of said, okay, this is, you know, this issue of duty of care. We can't just sit there saying, you know, this is out of bounds under all the circumstances because this happens to be a political decision, whatever the hell that political means in that instance. Um, listeners can imagine me putting scare quotes around political. Um, the, it, it, it forces other judges now to start thinking honestly, even, even though it is one single judge of the federal court who's made this decision. Other judges have to start grappling with this particular issue um, and grappling with it in a more honest way than they necessarily have at the time. And that's not meaning to besmirch judges or anything else like that, but you do have a lot of excuse making, or at least my sense of it is there's a lot of excuse making when it comes to these questions of like, why are we finding them liable in this instance? Ultimately, it all comes back to this unverified kind of floodgates argument um, or a shyness about interfering with um, you know, democratic principles and where the democratic decision-making should be held. But when you have a decision that's clearly negligent, you kind of have to interfere with it. Like this, there are limits to what governments can do. They're not boundless. We don't have a human rights charter in Australia, but we probably should. But I think <laughs> we'd be better off if we did. We don't have one in Australia, and, but we still have to have limits to what governments can and can't do. And if the governments aren't willing to exercise those, and we live in a Westminster system, which means the parliament has a very limited ability to be able to influence those, that leaves one body of the crown um, that's left to, to take step into that role and to put that limit on power. And beyond that, you have violent revolution in the streets. Maybe not violent, but you, you have people on the streets, which is you know, all for lawful protest as a way of doing things there has to be better ways to make these sorts of decisions. So I think Sharma in that sense is, is forcing people to have an honest confrontation. Also, it kind of forced what the thing of that, and I don't know that this was necessarily an intentional part of the theory of change behind bringing that claim, is now that it is, now that um, there's been a judgment in favour of the plaintiffs, meaning that the minister has a duty of care, um, that she is, while there was no order compelling her not to derogate from that duty, she is a duty of care. You can't just, you don't need an order necessarily to tell you that you can't breach a duty of care. That now has to be appealed. The government has to appeal that. And if that gets to a, that goes to a higher authority, whether that's the full court or the federal court, I expect it will go to the high court eventually, regardless of what happens. Um, and then suddenly you've reinvented the boundaries of what is legitimate decision-making um, in Australia. Not beyond climate change, beyond anything else, there is now a boundary on what ministers can decide. Um, and that's kind of huge. Like that's not just rewriting environmental law, that's not just rewriting climate law, that's rewriting the principles of democracy in Australia. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very meaningful case um, in that regard. There were a bunch of refugee decisions, like, you know, a lot of the principal 
of the Sharma judgment comes out of um, a bunch of those refugee decisions back in, you know, 2018 and so on. Um, but none of those were appealed ever. And I think that was, you know, Department of, um, well, was home, was immigration now, it's um, uh, home affairs, um, never pushed those to the federal court. They could have, but I reckon the reason that they didn't was because they were too chicken. And when I say too chicken, I don't mean not this instance, not this, this individual refugee who's been denied medical care. And I've read all of those cases and they're horrific. Um, you're talking about, you know, kids with encephalitis being denied medical care. You've got so, so, so many um, kids who have, kids who are like 5, 10, 12, who have been attempting suicide. Like it is horrendous, the detail of these cases. Um, and the, the, but the, the ministers, the part of the, the, the reason I think the minister never like pushed those cases to the, to the full court of the federal court or to, you know, eventually to the high court is because to take that appeal and lose means is so meaningful for what it means to not just this minister's power, but all ministers' powers from today until the end of, well, basically until legislation is passed and neuter it, but, you know, common law legal system, we live in hope that this can stand the test of time. Mm. Um. So what would you say to a current law student who wants to contribute in some fashion, whether now as a student or further into their career? Because as much as I'm sure that this issue matters to everyone, a lot of people are going to wind up in corporate gigs. Uh, I mean, basically get the, my, my number one thing is get passionate i don't care whether people care about climate change i don't care what people care about my i mean i do care if people care about climate change more people should care about climate change it's basically my life's work i do it from when i wake up at you know whatever time i wake up and until i go to bed at whatever time i go to bed at. um with a, with you know <laughs> some interaction with my children and my partner in between times but not let's face it a lot of my time is work um i think get passionate about what you where you can make a difference um and and look for those bits where things uh look for those injustices and start working at them worry at the problem uh, i mean worry in the sort of worrying and not kind of sense i apologize to my son who's gonna come in a second um sorry he's just nattering in the background as he walks into the house um uh find those areas of passion find those areas that you can make a real difference because there's so many issues that need to be having have a difference made to them at the moment that can be done within the auspices of a corporate law firm that can be done you know i mean you know sarah barker at mentor ellison is truly um truly a force of nature in terms of shaping how companies look at their um their duty of care like their own the section 180 duty of care, I mean, as in um, due diligence type stuff um, under the Corporations Act. Um, there are so many others who, you know, Martin Wilder, who I think was at Baker McKenzie for some time and is now, and then was the chair of ARENA and now is off on his own doing his group called Pollination. So much good that you can do with the law. Um, 
and so much of a difference that you can make to people's lives. And I, I think people who people who settle for not taking advantage for that advantage of that, um, I think their lives are poorer for it. And, and this is going from my experience of the people I know who have come up through. Um, I've got a decent, you know, I did a law degree. I've got a lot of, and I'm still in touch with a fair few people I did my law degree with. Finding those areas where you can make a difference is so, so important, whether, no matter where you land. Um, and that can be through work, that can be outside work, that can be in your spare time, that can be anything. Okay, so as we wrap up, I've got two further questions. First one, it's either quick or it takes people a while to expand on their thoughts, but it's an ethics question. So a long-standing, this might not be relevant for you, <laughs> given you haven't worked as a professional lawyer, but um, or practicing law. So a long-standing and highly valued client approaches you one day and asks you to carry out a series of transactions, which would make it hard for an outside observer to track the movement of some money. On its own, the transactions aren't illegal, but they're obviously meant to hide something suspicious. What do you do? Oh, no, I wouldn't. I mean, but this is the privilege of me being, um, of being not a lawyer. I don't have any obligations to my client because I'm not a lawyer. In fact, mm. what do I do? I say, Soz, not a lawyer. Someone else's problem, ultimately. Uh, <laughs> it's one of my favourite things to do is when, whenever anyone comes to me, like, so I've got this curly legal question. I'm just like, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. There's actually laws against me saying, providing legal advice and, and I, can't, I can't sit here and go through your wild journey. <laughs> through whatever that you've got. Oh, you've got a parking fine. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm not a lawyer. I can't give you legal advice. Mm. Um, poor you. Poor me. It's, it's, you know, um, uh, I mean, ultimately, it's it's coming down to, that's the, one of those things where it comes down to professional judgment as much as anything else. Not, a, not, not illegal on its own terms, fine, but is it being used to enable um, unlawful activity? Um, the ethical question ultimately comes down to your gut. Um, and I think that's one of the things where that boundary becomes fuzzy. And I think it's intentionally fuzzy because, mm. yeah, um, it, it's going down to your gut. It's like, is this person actually, you know, using this to funnel money off into a pedophile ring? Do I really think that's what they're doing or, you know, embezzlement or whatever other thing? Or is it just that they're a security nerd who's trying to hide, you know, I use a VPN on my on my computer. I don't use it because I'm planning on doing unlawful activity. I use it because I don't like the idea of being watched. I don't like the idea of being tracked. That doesn't mean that I'm doing unlawful activity. It's just I don't want my stuff ending up in a database. The same as I, you know, don't I don't have a flybys card or a Woolies reward card or any of those other things because I don't like being tracked. Um, doesn't yeah comes yeah. Um, okay, final question. Top five recommendations of any sort. So I've got books, TV shows, music, people that you find interesting, living or dead, stuff like that. So I'm going to say my cup of tea that I've been sipping from the whole way through is one of my favorite things that I have. Um, it's called Julungan tea. Um, it's taken my partner, bought it for me. And in a last ditch effort to hope that it would help with my insomnia, um, it didn't because I drink it all the way through the day and <laughs> it doesn't make any doesn't make me any sleepier. But I do like it. It's J I L U N G I N, um, and there are a bunch of organisations that sell it. I'm not going to recommend any particular brand, um, but do try and look for one that uses Indigenous ranges in them because it is a an, um, 
Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a tea that comes from you know, indigenous cultures within Australia. I would say that on my bookshelf, if I have behind me, there is a really great book, which is um, Mary Robinson, former president of Ireland's book, um, Climate Justice, Hope, Resilience and the Fight for a Sustainable Future. Um, which is a really, really good book. I just realised that I have the uncorrected proof. I don't even know how I managed to do that, um, I, but I do. Um, it is out and public and available. Um, really, really, really good book. Um, I would say in terms of podcasts, there is a great, extremely sweary, extremely bullshit calling podcast. Actually, I've got... Well, I'm just going to do three podcasts but I don't know if I can remember the name of the last one um as my last things so there's the um hot take um which are two um American uh climate writers uh, Mary Annie's Hegler and oh my god I'm having a mental blank from the other one Amy Westervelt Amy Westervelt um who do this thing it's talking about like what's happening in climate coverage worldwide although it is very U.S. focused because they are in the U.S. Um, which is really good and really great way to find good climate writing. Um, there is also um, Amy's other um, uh, podcast, which is called Drilled, um, which is, uh, she calls it a true crime um, podcast, but the, the crime is climate change. Uh, <laughs> looking at all of the different um all of the different work that's been done by the various PR agencies and and journalists and others to back in climate denial over the course of however many decades. And the last, because I am talking climate, um, would be, I can't remember the name of the guy who does it, but there is a podcast called Boomtown, um, which is done, um, really explores a bunch of the communities around um, Texas and the Deep South um, in the oil and gas, um, unconventional oil and gas boom down there. Um, the journalist who runs the podcast is from the area where he's doing it and he's like going out and off and he's interviewing his family and he has such love for his community. And it's not particularly a climate change podcast, um, although he does sort of, he does raise that at times and he does talk about, you know, the detrimental impacts of the oil and gas industry but most of the stuff that he's talking about is really just the impacts on the community of having these huge boom and bust cycles riding through um riding through and what it what it turns a community into um and i think one of the reasons that i love it so much and it's only 13 episodes and didn't do a season series two or anything else like that but one of the reasons I, I love it so much is just because he has such love and such regard for his for the people he grew up with who are, you know, working in this space, you know, such an overriding respect. And then beyond that, I'm going to do six because I'm going to cheat the entire collection of works of the Climate Council um, <laughs> lawyer um, who do amazing work. And I'm really proud to be part of that team um, because, you know, not just because I'm working alongside people like, you know, Tim Flannery, Leslie Hughes, Professor Will Stephan, Professor Hilary Bambrick, all of these immensely amazing thinkers when it comes to climate change just on a day-to-day basis there's so much um that's worthwhile within the sort of 50 odd people who work for the organization um there are so many great people um yeah also people should donate to the council i'm going to throw that in too uh <laughs> crowdfunded um, good plug. yeah good plug i gotta get gotta throw one in there yeah 
Well, look, given the content of that sixth recommendation, I think I'll allow it. I won't censor you for cheating. Thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Make sure you tune in next week where I'll be interviewing Scott Stevenson about constitutional law. Until then, I hope you enjoy your week.